Welcome to the Healthcare IT Today CIO podcast. I'm John Lynn, the founder and chief editor at Healthcare IT Today, and I'm excited to bring you the most practical healthcare CIO insights and perspectives. We know your job is challenging and we want to help you be more successful. And today's guest is Dr. Michael Hasselberg. He's chief digital health officer at University of Rochester Medical Center. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Really excited for our discussion today. Yeah, I'm excited too. You know, in the in the lead up, I mentioned uh, Rochester is is another home for me. I've been there a lot. I love it there. So it's fun to have someone from URMC on the on the podcast. But uh, before we dive into today's topic, tell us a little bit about yourself and University of Rochester Medical Center. Sure, um, Michael Hasberg. So I'm the Chief Digital Health Officer at uh, URMC. I'm a nurse by clinical training who went on to get uh, several other other degrees after that, a nurse practitioner degree and then a PhD degree. Um, University of Rochester Medical Center, for those of you who don't know about us, we are a fairly large academic health system in the western part of New York State. We have a quite a large geography that that we serve. Um, you're all the way out to central part of New York, up to uh, um, the Lake Ontario, down to the Pennsylvania border, and all the way out to Ohio. So we, we cover quite a large uh, geography. And uh, yeah, really, really excited to talk about some of the innovative work we're, we're doing at MC. Awesome. Yeah, I would say you are the medical center in the area. It's uh, You definitely have an impressive uh, impact on, on that area of the country. So it's awesome. You know, you recently made a, a big announcement kind of around rural communities. I think it got a lot of attention, uh, kind of a unique approach. But what was the problem that you identified that pushed URMC to, to expand this healthcare access to rural communities with the announcement that you made? Yeah. So, I mean, we serve a pretty diverse geography, everything from, you know, the inner city of Rochester, which is like any other mid-sized city, but you go 20 minutes, 30 minutes outside of the city limits, and it is very, very rural. Um, you know, one of the, I think, good things that came out of the pandemic was our health system, like every other health system in the country had to turn on telemedicine uh, overnight. Um, and, you know, when we looked at our, our data as the pandemic uh, continued to move forward, you know, some of the biggest impacts had, uh, via telehealth was serving our Medicaid patient population, both in the city and also out in our rural communities. And, you know, one of the things, however, that we noticed specifically in our, our rural communities was that our patients engaging in telehealth were only engaging in audio only. They weren't engaging in the video component of telehealth. And when we did a deeper dive into the reason for that, you know, initially we thought it's got to be a broadband issue. There's just, you know, not uh, internet access out in these communities. And we were wrong. Uh, there was a substantial broadband out in these communities. It was, it was a poverty issue. You know, folks couldn't afford broadband internet um, in their in their home. And so the only internet they had available to them was their data plans uh, on their cell phones. And video is a pretty significant data intensive feed and folks just didn't want to use their data plans up, but we're willing to engage in audio only. We knew that as the public health emergency was going to be lifted, that 
reimbursement for audio only was going to go away. So we really need to think outside the box of, you know, where could we set up telemedicine hubs out in these communities where which were convenience, easily accessible, that had internet connectivity for patients to continue receiving the care that we saw they significantly benefited from during the pandemic. So that's really kind of what started this outside the box group of partnerships that uh, uh, I think we're going to talk about today. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I mean, I kind of buried the lead a little. The, the, you know, the big partnership is, is is being able to do telehealth at your bank, which I I think is, you know, that, that I think that's why it's it spread. You know, the news because uh, it is a you know, like you said, a, a unique approach to solving the problem you just described. So, talk to us about all the partners that came together to make this happen because it wasn't just you. It just it wasn't a bank, right? <laughs> like, you know, it was, and you needed the technology there as well. So talk to us about who are these partners and how did you kind of package it together to solve this rural telehealth problem? I, I guess I would, you know, simply call it. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing we did, again, as, as we're talking about data plans on phones. So, you know, the first thought was, well, let's really understand that a little bit better. So we looked at, you know, our data around, you know, who were the big telecommunication providers uh, in our network, who had the, the most penetration. And in our region, it was Verizon. And so, you know, I really kind of hunted down uh, who who was leading healthcare for Verizon. And I, I got on their schedule and said, hey, we'd love to really think with you outside the box around how we could partner with a, a Verizon to meet the needs of these patients. You know, Verizon had said, you know, hey, we're talking with this, this company called Higgy Health right now that makes these biometric uh, kiosk stations. And Higgy is interested in um, bringing connectivity uh, bandwidth uh, to those stations so they could deliver telehealth. Let's connect you to and we started talking with Higgy and really started to learn what their mission and vision was. And we, we saw some alignment there. You know, the next uh, partner um, on the list is uh, DexCare, which is uh, our health systems on-demand telemedicine uh, software platform. And we said, well, if we're going to partner with you, Higgy, and Verizon, DexCare has got to be at this table. We've got to get our, our telemedicine software integrated uh, into those stations. And then the next question came to, well, where do we put these stations? And the, you know, you're brains go in, in, in different directions on, on this question. You know, the first thing that that pops up is, you know, what if we put them into libraries or community centers or barbershops? And there's been other pilots that have shown success doing telehealth uh, into those, in, into those uh, establishments. But the problem with doing telehealth into a library or community center or barbershop for a health system it's not scalable beyond that pilot because it takes a lot of resources on the health system side to negotiate contracts and to negotiate a contract with every single library and with every single barbershop, you know, that is just not tenable. And so the next place that your brain goes to is, well, what about retailers? And, you know, we know of a lot of retailers who have entered into the healthcare space and you start thinking about, you know, pharmacies that are out there or other types of retailers who've, who've moved into healthcare. But, 
you know, retailers struggle with an, another problem. You know, their main business is selling product and they've calculated to the square footage of how much product they need to fit into that square footage <laughs> to sell. And we've seen with the retailers who moved into healthcare, they've really struggled to make that return on investment argument because when you take up any of that square footage to either put a telemedicine station or an uh, integrated uh, uh, primary care practice, you can't generate enough volume offsets that loss in uh, um, uh, selling products. And yeah. so, you know, the, the, the retailers was a, a tough kind of nut to crack around kind of move forward with with these stations. And so we were back to the drawing board again. And it was like, okay, well, what are in these rural communities? And when you think about it, you know, you you, you think about Main Street, there, there's a traffic light, and there's a dollar store, and there's a <laughs> bank. And we go, well, what about banks? It you know, started really thinking further around the banking industry. You know, I did actually a deep dive to understand banks own digital transformation over the last 10 years, going from brick and mortar to ATMs to online banking. And, you know, there was a really great paper uh, that was uh, published a couple of years ago by the governors of the Federal Reserve that talked about the importance of brick and mortar banks in small rural communities and actually talked about that in a community you can't do just online banking. The small businesses in those communities rely on that brick and mortar bank to drop off their deposits on a daily or weekly basis. And when a rural bank closes its doors, that just feeds into the poverty of that community because the small businesses leave and potentially predatory lenders move in. And so Banks, you know, are trying to reinvent themselves in these communities. How can we continue to generate foot traffic back uh, into these banks to keep them, you know, viable or sustainable longer? And so we did a deeper dive and who were the who what banks had the biggest market share in our region? And we've come to find out uh, a community a bank called Five Star Bank had the biggest uh, market penetration. And we reached out uh, to the uh, president and CEO of Five Star Bank and kind of ran this idea by um, him. And, you know, he was already kind of thinking in this direction. He said, yes, we would love to partner with you. I've got all of this real estate available, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, we're looking to get foot traffic back. We're the trusted institution already in these communities. You know, folks come to their small rural bank. They know their tellers, you know, it's almost a social gathering spot. And they're friends. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and banks are looking to give back to their communities. They want to do good by their community. So it was, it was kind of this aha moment of like, this, this may be the right place to deliver healthcare. And so that's kind of how, how we landed on banks. And what the really kind of cool thing about banks are is banks function in a branch distribution model. And so as a health system, I really need to only negotiate once with a bank and then I have potentially access to all of their bank branches. So now we go from an idea that could be scalable. And so that's how we got to where we are today. That's interesting. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how it is for all banks, but I know my bank 
most of the desks are sitting there empty when I go to visit and have to deposit a check or something, you know, because so many of those services have gone virtually. And so, you know, they don't have as many people sitting there. So I imagine there was some excess inventory there. So, so it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, if I understand this right, five-star bank is going to be the, you know, rural telehealth, because you'll still use telehealth to see the, the patients, but they'll just do it at the bank. They'll use the the Higgy uh, workstations there to facilitate it with the Verizon business connection. And then you have Dexcare as your, your telehealth platform. Is that kind of the whole, you know, who's doing what in the Alliance? It, 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 that's absolutely who's doing what. Um, you know, that the banks actually came forward and did some renovations in their bank to make sure that the, the, the room that we put these stations in was private and um, secure. Uh, you know, uh, Verizon, you know, came in, brought into the connectivity, made sure there was accessible phone that patient picked up the phone in the room. It would go right to a UR Medicine uh uh, a staff member that could help uh, troubleshoot, you know, Dexcare, you know, really worked with Higgy to make sure that they could take their, their telemedicine platform and make it seamless. So you could just click a few buttons on the screen uh, of the Higgy station and connect right with the UR medicine provider. And, you know, from a UR medicine standpoint, we're already kind of thinking through with Higgy, you know, what other sensors can we put on these stations to collect more data on our patients so we can deliver even further services you know the really cool thing about these stations is they already collect biometrics uh, and and one of the things that during the pandemic that we saw with our primary care providers as they delivered telehealth is they said man i wish i could have grabbed a set of vital signs uh, on that patient now when patients arrive to these stations, we get all those vital signs and do the telehealth. And, you know, our hope is if this is successful, we can go beyond right now in the current pilot, we're delivering urgent care type services by uh, staffed by U of R primary care providers. But we would love to get those stations to a state if we see that patients use these stations, they're comfortable with these stations, they enjoy these stations, you know, can we deliver chronic disease management uh, at these stations? And so that's kind of the really, I think, exciting thing about the potential of this. Yeah, I want to dive into that a bit more, but before I go there, I'm thinking, you know, we've seen a, a, an evolution I have, you know, covering the space, HealthSpot being the most famous original one, came out, blew up at CES, $30 million of funding, and then disappeared. Uh, you know, these these stations that, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, right? Higgy's obviously a next generation. So there's a lot of people that have ideas about these stations. Um, I think the interesting thing for me is, um, are you going to have a person there? Because that was what the health spot models was. They had an MA that would help, you know, hook up the blood pressure cuff and do some of those things. And, and maybe that's why they failed. But you're you're not planning on any people there. It's all self-service. The patient walks in and knows what to do. All self-service. And, you know, remember, Higgy's been out in the market for, for several years now. You know, if you yep. go into your local pharmacy or even your local grocer, um, you know, even gyms, you know, there are Higgy health stations out there. And so they're already today self-served and patients are already using them to get their vitals and track their vitals. So the stations themselves had, you know, 
aren't new, um, at least uh, to the, the larger patient markets, um, all are are already being used. You know, we just took them to a whole nother level by developing the, the platform on top of those stations where you can actually see a provider um, uh, um, right at that station. And then again, the next next gen station, you know, if this is successful, you know, what are other sensors or peripherals that we can add to that station so we can do more services uh, at it? But you're 100% right. There is no physical clinician at the distant end uh, working with, with the patient. Interesting. And so, you know, you talked a little bit about what these stations can do, you know, you know, and, and the idea like, hey, potentially we could do chronic care management. Is that the view? Is it more like follow-up visits? Is it more the kind of emergent care? I got a cold, I got a flu or, you know, and, and what are some things you aren't going to do? You know, like, you're like, nah, this isn't meant for this, this type of telehealth. Well, uh, you know, so things that we're currently rolling out are, again, urgent care. So what you would go to an urgent care or an on-demand telemedicine visit you would do in your home, you can do that today at these stations. And, and it's served by University of Rochester primary care providers. Other things that you can do at these stations today um, are uh, prevention. So you can go and, you know, with without seeing a U of R provider, go get your vital signs and built into these stations are care pathways, um, education materials from, you know, the American Heart Association around, hey, your blood pressure is high, you know, here are some journeys you could take on your diet or exercise to, you know, potentially better manage uh, your your, your blood pressure, like that's available today at these, these stations. You know, we would love, you know, in an ideal state to get these stations to a point where 95% of what we do in a primary care office, we can do at those stations and schedule patients to those stations for chronic disease management. And then the 5% of, of uh, the things that you need to see the primary care provider in person, those patients would drive those 10, 15 miles to the closest primary care provider. I mean, part of part of this partnership is really the, the proximity of where the, these banks are. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. Before we partnered with the bank, um, you know, we had geocoded all of our patients, uh, uh, their addresses that were a part of UR Medicine. And outside of our city limits, 75% of our patients live 10 miles or more to the closest U of R primary care practice or urgent care practice. When we geocoded the five-star banks, we saw over 50% of our patients outside of our city limits live within three miles of a five-star bank. And, you know, as our health system continues to grow its geographic reach, you know, it's not tenable for us to put a primary care practice in every one of these small rural communities. And so, um, you know, the hope is, you know, we still want to provide high quality care in these communities. This virtual primary care station or practice would, again, capture 95% maybe in the future of what a primary care does in person, and then only that 5% um, patients will need to drive that extra 10 to 15 miles to, to get care. So that's kind of the concept and idea behind this. 
It's interesting. That probably started originally with your telehealth efforts, you know, trying to do it, but then people just could, couldn't on the, be on the bandwidth. Because I, I assume that's your goal with DexCare, even in cities where, you know, there's good connectivity and, and they, they have the bandwidth. There's not the the poverty issues. I mean, I'm sure there is in some areas, but uh, is that the vision with DexCare is really to do a huge portion of your primary care through telehealth if yeah. if a patient wants? Yeah, we've, we've had our on-demand primary care telehealth service line through DexCare going well before this, this pilot with, with the bank. And it's one of our most successful service lines. Our patients love it. Our primary care providers love it in terms of the flexibility and the convenience, the wait time to get in to see one of our providers on that service tends to average around seven minutes. So it's a very uh, uh, wait time. Um, and, you know, what our, what our, but again, what our data has shown, you know, yes, we can still reach the Medicaid patients, especially in, in, in the inner cities. And, you know, what we're thinking is because there's a lot more Wi-Fi hotspots available mm. in the city region. So when you go out into the rural communities, there are not as many accessible Wi-Fi hotspots. And, what we're seeing is, you know, folks just don't want to use their data plans of their internet on their phone to do this service in their homes. So that was kind of why we wanted to find other accessible places that are conveniently located in these communities, which would have that internet uh, capability that folks could go and get that care. Um, so, you know, our, our fingers are crossed uh, that that this will work, but we're also, we're also realistic and understand that this is this is really outside of the box thinking yeah. you know the behavior change still exactly <laughs> i think we're the only health system in the country that i'm aware of that trying to deliver health care into a bank now will will patients feel comfortable going to get health care services in the bank and willing to change their, those behaviors we don't know. This may be a total nothing burger. And, you know, folks uh, say, nope, I'm not going to the bank to get uh, healthcare services. But what if it does work? If it does work, this could really, really be transformative. There are banks like Five Star Bank across the entire country. And there are health systems like the U of R trying to solve this exact same problem. How do I deliver rural healthcare services? If this works, this totally could be replicated across the country. And we've already had other health systems reach out to us after they saw, you know, the, the press around this and said, this is a brilliant idea. We would love to talk with you about trying to do something very similar into our communities. So, you know, folks are, folks are buying into the, the logic around why we're trying to do this. Yeah. I did too. That's why I reached out. But uh, yeah, the closest I've heard is uh, fire stations, which I think is another interesting angle, but has its own challenges because do they have the space? Do they have the public accessibility, et cetera? So. But you then have to negotiate because you've got fire stations in each town and then you might yep. have fire stations in the county. And again, it's still then a separate negotiation with every fire station. And yep. and that is just not scalable. And so you you we you really kind of got to think through approaches of not only, okay, we can have a successful pilot, but if the pilot works, now <laughs> how, how do you open it up uh, so you have equi equitable access to, to all of your patients? And that's, again, that's where this bank branch distribution model potentially allows you to do that. Yeah. Well, I love it. It's very thoughtful and very innovative. 
You know, you're the chief digital health officer, which, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think there's many health systems that would love to have someone like you. Uh, <laughs> maybe they have someone, they haven't given them that title. Outside of this alliance, what other digital health efforts is URMC doing, you know, whether it's telehealth, digital front door, you know, what other things are you working on that are exciting beyond just this effort? It's a great question. So, you know, when I look at the work we're doing at the U of R, you know, we have some real kind of innovation work going on more frontier technologies. And then we've got some more kind of practical innovation to solve our problems today. And one of the things that makes the University of Rochester Medical Center unique and different from pretty much every other academic health system left in the country is we're one of only a handful that's still fully integrated into its parent university. So we have one budget, it rolls up to the university's budget. So the upside of that is we have a true digital innovation incubator, a team that consists of faculty from across the whole university, engineers, computer scientists, data scientists, business faculty, music faculty, under the medical school, dental school, and nursing school. And it's not... It's not your traditional research lab. You know, we don't, we, our KPIs aren't how many NIH grants that, that we receive or how many publications we get out. And we're also not a type of incubator where our KPIs are of how many companies can we spin out and, and commercialize. So like we're truly set up to help fill the strategic needs of the health system. So types of projects that we work on have a substantial uh, range. So yes, digital front door. We started working on digital front door type uh, technologies very early into the pandemic. So, you know, we stood up, um, you know, a chatbot that will help you sign up for the patient portal and answer frequently asked questions or find a provider. We turned on online scheduling and we set up, you know, the e-check-in so you can check into your appointments, do all your insurance and demographics all on your own device before you ever arrive to the we turn on things like on-demand telemedicine and, and e-visits, and we turn on the ability to pay your bills with, with the click of a button. You know, we've, we've moved from, you know, the digital front door to really thinking almost about that digital side door. You know, now that you've got patients into the health system, how do you keep them engaged and not only care within the health system, but you know, preventative um, uh, care. And so, you know, in that space, you know, we've we've turned on things like digital care pathways that are SMS text-based that you can prescribe out to patients and, and keep them uh, engaged and, and adherent uh, to care. You know, we've started thinking about our, our education um, uh, that in the past we would hand out you know, pamphlets to patients and how do we make it more YouTube-like? And we started converting our education onto, you know, easily accessible uh, videos. You know, we've we've thought, started moving into the mobile app space and the innovation incubator, we've developed our own uh, apps, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy mobile apps that, you know, you can prescribe right out of the electronic health record uh, um, uh, to patients and the data will flow back in. You know, we've looked into how do you prescribe out ride share and address social determinants of, of health. And, you know, on the frontier side, you know, we've we've done a lot of work uh, with 
virtual reality and augmented reality. We've developed our own mindfulness and meditation applications. I've got VR headsets deployed uh, across uh, uh, my hospitals where both you know, kids and adults who are coming in for, you know, operative uh, or procedural services, you know, we can put VR headsets on them and they can engage in mindfulness and meditation. And we've shown reduction in anesthetic uh, medication uh, uses. We've we've deployed uh, an AI robot, um, a companion robot in, 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 in our children's hospital. Um, you know, right now, you know, where, where my efforts are and where my health systems efforts are and the strategy is has really kind of pivoted a little bit you know we actually because we were so successful on the patient side in terms of creating more convenient access and engagement opportunities for patients to connect with our health systems that in a lot of ways has had some detriment on my clinicians and on my providers that's you know never before has patients <laughs> had more easily accessible direct access to their providers or their clinicians. And, you know, like most health systems in, in the country, we have a lot of burnout happening uh, um, with both our, our nurses, but also our, our providers and, and our staff. And so, you know, we've really kind of focused and pivoted away from the patient for right now to looking at how do we leverage technology to make the lives of the clinicians better. And let's be frank, you know, up to this point, technology has not been the friend of, of the clinician. <laughs> However, you know, part of what we've done in the innovation incubator is, you know, we've been working with machine learning, um, you know, we have a data science institute, you know, we've been developing computer vision models and, and NLP models for years um, with various levels of success in regards to the impact that machine learning has uh, uh, within healthcare. Fast forward to generative AI, and I know it's the buzzword that everyone's been talking about for over a year now, and folks are, you know, you know, almost having generative AI fatigue. <laughs> you know, we're we're as as a health system pretty bullish on generative AI, and we got early access to things like GPT four on our Azure instance in a secure manner, really early. You know, before most health systems had it, and you know we've got a supercomputer in our innovation lab, and we've got open source um, uh, language models uh, on, on that supercomputer, and we've looked at beyond Microsoft's and OpenAI's models, we've looked at Google's models, and we've looked at Meta models. And, you know, we're really excited about the opportunities that these large language models have on transforming the lives of our clinicians. And, you know, we've started to develop our own tools, building off of these foundation models to, you know, triage patient messages, to do chart synthesis, um, to create form fillers where the models can take out, uh, you know, the appropriate data out of the EHR and fill out a workman's comp form uh, for for the, the clinician. You know, we've we've built chat with your data. So, you know, our clinicians can, you know, ping the repository of our IT help desk of all the PDFs there. And so they can get quicker answers from the IT help desk, you know, leveraging, you know, these generative AI models. And, you know, like a lot of health systems in the country, we've partnered with the 
with the big tech companies and we've partnered with startup companies around ambient documentation and we've started to build our own ambient documentation tool so our, our, ourselves in the house and so you know that's really you know where we're spending the most of our time right now is in machine learning with which in data science and and I think we're finally to a point that the AI is is good enough that we can really start uh, um, making some improvements on re removing some of the burdens that are sitting on top of my workforce. I love it, Michael. I mean, what a breadth of, uh, of options and uh, the great work that you and your team at uh, U of R Medical Center are doing. Is that the technology or initiative that you're kind of keeping your eye on is, is all the Gen AI, AI, or are there other things that you're looking at that you're like, you know what, you know, maybe you don't use them now or you just started to uh, that you see will be a benefit to the healthcare organization. Is it all AI or are there some other things you're looking at? You know, it's it's a lot of it's uh, AI, not only on the language side, but also on the computer vision side. And so, you know, things Is that, that like virtual nursing and rounding and stuff like yes, that. Yeah, or? yeah, exactly. You know, we already have lots of sensors already in our hospitals and, you know, we have a lot of different cameras already in our hospitals and, you know, using computer vision. I could capture vital signs um, from just using the, the camera uh, 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 in these rooms or even the camera on a phone or this camera right here. You know, I could capture um, things like when did when did my providers wash their hands instead of having a nurse, you know, timestamp and document that. Why don't I just have the, the camera uh, do that? And so, you know, the opportunities on the virtual nursing side are really, really exciting. You know, the the other thing that, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, is is hospital at home type programs. You know, we're earlier in that journey, probably you know, so because, you know, the way that our health system receives reimbursement is is more on the fee for service side than under capitation. And so, you know, doing um, uh, a hospital at home under fee for service is, is difficult, but we know that healthcare is moving towards capitation and value-based care. And we know that having a, a a, a hospital at home program is foundational to being successful under value-based care. However, you know, the traditional remote patient monitoring tools that most hospital at home programs have, Bluetooth, blood pressure cuffs and scales, you know, that technology is old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where, where I'm really excited from uh, an innovation standpoint is like, we all have one of these devices, right? You know, I could collect probably uh, the majority of the the data that we've traditionally collected on those RPM uh, 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 peripherals that that we've used in in in, uh, in years past, right from someone's smartphone. Like I said, you know, using computer vision, I could capture vital signs, you know, passively or actively uh, on on a smartphone, and so that excites me a lot is, you know, what type of um, insights can I gather from from just a smartphone to to deliver healthcare? And so, um, you know, it could be a data collection tool, but it's also really a great conduit for me to push out interventions to kind of treat and, and manage patients. And so, you know, really, really excited about, uh, the, you know, some of that technology. And then, 
you know, again, getting back to VR and AR, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I do think the metaverse will have a have a role in healthcare. I don't think it's going to have a role anytime soon, but you know, five years from now, I think you know VR and AR and XR technologies, you know, have a, a, a lot of potential. And so, you know, excited about new headsets and goggles that are coming out, so like you know Apple's recent announcements and seeing you know how does it you know have added value to the the technology that's already out there, and then you know I like five G when we talk about the telecommunication companies as we move care outside of the walls of the hospital and we think about hospital at home programs or even if we think about healthcare in the metaverse you're going to need you know very um you know low latency high bandwidth ways to transmit data and you know i think 5g and you know uh 6g in the future and you know that connectivity infrastructure will will play a, a massive role again as we move healthcare outside of the walls of the hospital. Um, so those types of things get me interested and excited. Yeah. No, I'm excited for what you said about the cell phone being the repository versus the wearables, Bluetooth outdated 100%. We still need a little FDA clearance on a few things, but uh, it's definitely progressing that way. So it's interesting. Well, we always like to wrap up these podcasts with a little career advice, career discussion as, you know, a little, little cherry on top at the end. So what's the best piece of advice you've been given in your career that you could share with our community? Oh, that's, that's a good one. And, you know, I think this advice came to me when I started to get more involved on the innovation side, you know, okay. prior to getting involved in the innovation side, uh, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways, I, I, I was a perfectionist, you know, I always like to I'm a, succeed. I'm a driver. I like to kind of, you know, push things forward. Um, but I got the advice when I moved into to innovation is, is it okay to fail? And, and failure is, 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 is really actually not a bad thing in a lot of ways could be a really good thing, but you need to fail fast and, you know, learn from your failures, iterate, try again. If you fail again, iterate, try again and get to a point where you say, you know what, this has failed, going to pivot, move on to the next thing. And so really embracing that it's okay to fail, um, I think was the, the best piece of advice that uh, um, was was given to me, and that that you know, once I had that, okay, if, you know, saying okay, it is all right to fail, that you could really kind of push things out of the box and say, yeah, let's try to deliver healthcare into a bank. Who knows? <laughs> it may work, and it may be really transformative. That's okay to to give it a try. So, I think being okay with failure. It's interesting because in healthcare, we're not okay with failure. And maybe it's the, you know, literally we say do no harm, right? <laughs> like yep. that created that culture of fear of failure. But I think to your point, if you fell in a way that, you know, that reduces the damage, right? You fell fast, uh, you know, then, you know, I, and I think maybe that's the other thing I've heard often is that doing nothing still has a negative impact. So, <laughs> you know, I think it's balancing those two ideas. A hundred percent. 
you know, I think, uh, you know, you, you hit the nail uh, right on the head there, John. I mean, I, I was a clinician, you know, I, I've spent my most of my career providing clinical care. And you're absolutely right. You know, you do not want to fail. Um, but, you know, as I started to transition more onto the kind of technology side of healthcare, you know, technology is moving so fast. Like we have to give things a try and you have to be okay with it not working out uh, uh, the first time because healthcare is broken in the United States. Something has to change. And so we can't sit around doing nothing. And so might as well give it a try, fail, and see what happens and learn from your mistakes. And so, yeah, I, it's, it, it, that, that advice has really been a game changer for me. That's awesome. Well, Michael, I appreciate you taking time to share about this innovative approach that you're doing and some of the other work uh, you, you of our medical center is doing. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. If you want to find more great healthcare IT content like this, be sure to check it out at healthcareittoday.com or search for the CIO podcast by Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcasting applications. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, John.